There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 22nd of June 2010. Now newcomers must look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com websites, bookmark all the other sites I got up there because I do get problems once in a while with the com site. Lots of folk going to it at the same time. It tends to slow it down a little bit. Plus, uh, I'm on a choke and uploading to Yahoo and uh, they've actually told me that and I put up the email from them on the front page there, they, up, they put a choke on my uploads so that to, to dissuade me from putting so much up, they claim, even though I'm on unlimited bandwidth. However, that's the way it goes. The masters control the rules, and we have to follow as we pay. And when you're at it, go into the books I have for sale. They're different books than you'll normally read. Uh, the books I do quote from often are av- widely available for people who want to study seriously what's happening in the world. But I show you techniques of thought, techniques of uh, getting around the linear thinking that you've been trained to think in, and show you how uh, the, the masters think. When they train the peasants to, to think in a linear fashion, they understand our logic. We will always come at pre-desired uh, conclusions, desired by the masters, that is. They themselves don't think in a linear fashion. They're wild animals, you might say, and they can't fall for the con jobs that we fall for all the time. So while you're at it, as I say, buy the books, buy the CDs, the DVDs I have, and you can pay from the U.S. to Canada for these books by uh, personal check. You can also use an international postal money order in the U.S. to Canada. You can use PayPal for donations and to purchase. If you want to purchase, send a separate email with your name, address, and order, and along with the PayPal donation, and I'll get it out to you. Cash is okay as well. Across the rest of the world, same idea. Western Union is good uh, with PayPal for ordering and donation. And you can also use MoneyGram. Some people, again, send cash from Europe. And for the next two or three years, we'll accept that. Uh, before we go all electronic. And that's the way it's supposed to go, apparently. Now, most folk are so confused with this New World Order, they don't understand really what it is. There are so many facets to it. There are so many different angles to it and so many uh, fronts really uh, pushing for different causes, different wants, uh, and that type of thing. When you look at, say, for instance, the G20 meeting, that's uh, happening in Toronto right now, which they call Fortress City, by the way, because we've got miles of uh, wire fencing up all around the inside of the, this uh, big city. So many folk who live there have been kicked out of their homes or they've just left for the country while this is taking place. Even the tourists can't get into it. They're getting out of Toronto as well. They can't even get, apparently, um, rooms in hotels because so many policemen have come in from all other provinces to take part in this security measure. We're being trained, for instance, that uh, things are changing big time. 
and that force is being used uh, as a show to make the big boy, the big bad boy, big brother seem invincible to the little peasants all round about them. That's really what it's for. It's overboard with everything. And apart from that, they didn't have to have it in Toronto. They could have had it in one of their usual hotels in the country where it's easy to get security and maintain the security perimeters and so on. So it's a show of force as they, they go through all of this kind of stuff. And we're being trained, as I say, into a new type of system. But what's interesting is when you look at all the different participants and protesters at the G20, it's just amazing how many of them are getting funded by the foundations uh, and some of the leaders of the foundations are taking part inside the G20 meetings. So they run both sides of it. Be back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Ward and we're cutting through the matrix just talking about the G20 and which is a formality really because the politicians themselves uh, who, who they eat incredible meals at this and I don't know how many courses they get I read from a G8 meeting they had uh, last year and uh, it just boggled the mind but um, they get 10 minutes to speak so it's a formality we're witnessing a $1.1 billion extravaganza and uh, for a formality, so, so that they can mouth a couple of things, belch a few times after introducing their names, and then sit down and go back to the brandy, and then sign the, the different agreements and treaties that have been laid out for them by the people who've done the real work uh, long before uh, this meeting even occurred. It takes about a year or more to set everything up and get everything on board, everybody on board with it. But before I get to that, one of the main things I was going to talk about tonight, we'll tie into this, you'll find as well, is the population of the world. Now, they're, they're hell-bent at the top in decreasing the world's population by all means and every means possible, and they have been for an awful, awful long time. Even when we didn't have the population we have now, and I don't even know if you can believe the statistics they have today on population across the world. But anyway, even back in the 1920s, right after World War I, a whole bunch of books came out, again, from the foundations, the usual suspects, claiming there were too many people and the war hadn't killed enough. And at that time, uh, the big British eugenics society was on the go, full blast, so was the American one, they were brothers actually, uh, and they wanted to kill off the excess, what they called the unfit populations and those of low intellects, or even in the laboring classes altogether, they said that eventually we'd get post-industrial and we wouldn't need all these types anymore. They, would be, they wouldn't be happy because um, there'd be no factory work left for them. So they were living through an agenda, a script, as I say, and I'm pretty sure back then, I know in the 1930s, they knew then they would build China up in the future to be the manufacturer for the planet. So you understand we're living through a big script and those who rule the world and there are rulers of the world uh, don't allow anything to happen uh, outside their plans they're in control of every major thing that occurs in life including world wars and they have the same excuses for all the wars just like today with the, the starting with the gulf war one and then afghan 
And we find, of course, they were going to invade Afghanistan before the towers went down. They even had troops ready. Uh, all that kind of stuff comes out afterwards. And, uh, and then Iraq, and then Iran as they go next, and then Syria. So they'll give us all the propaganda we need until their polls convince us that we're thoroughly brainwashed and we'll start to believe it, and then they'll continue on their merry way. But remember, to rule the world, you have to have perpetual war. And these boys do have perpetual war on the world in all different areas of the world, right down to your social areas and society. And they have economic wars on the public as well. And the world they want to bring in is a world where you'll serve the new world order. You'll serve your betters, and you will will allow yourselves down the road, maybe the next generation, to be sterilized uh, mandatorily by the experts who will select you for it. And they'll train a generation that this is all quite normal, to sacrifice themselves so that others may live and all that kind of stuff. You see it all in the science fiction. That's all that's out for is to prepare you for all of this, things to come. Now, here's a a typical PR piece on depopulation, and it's from The Independent. Uh, There's nothing uh, to to counter the arguments here. No one tries to counter the arguments, so they, they take everything at face value. It's a PR exercise, one of many. And it says here, A growing number of scientists are going where politicians fear to tread by calling for a wider public debate on the sensitive issue of the global human population, which is set to rise from the present 6.8 billion to perhaps 9 billion by 2050. I like their perhaps. Even though, remember, uh, Britain and other countries have maintained that the only reason their population is up is because of mass immigration and that the native populations are not breeding enough children to pay off the national debts. Now it's an international debt, right? So they've got the whole world roped into it. So don't forget that as I read this particular article. Uh, Lord Rees, the president of the Royal Society, that's that great Royal Society again. These are the guys who shape all avenues of science as far as the public will be concerned or what we'll get to know about it for the whole world. If you want to get anywhere in the scientific community and be famous, you have to be a member of the Royal Society. This is the brought up the subject in his excellent wreath lectures and Sir David Attenborough, another guy very much like David Suzuki, he likes furry animals and goes across the world living on the taxpayers' money because he works for the BBC, which is tax funded by the public. Anyway, Sir David Attenborough has become a champion of those who believe population has been relegated as an environmental issue. And more recently, Professor Aubrey Manning, Aubrey Manning, presenter of the BBC's Earth Story, I can imagine what that will be about, has stated that the sheer number of humans on the planet is the greatest menace the world faces. He's parroting really what Kissinger said back in 72. Scientists have a reputation for saying things as they are, not as they should be. Politicians, forever looking, um, forever looking for short-term solutions to keep them in office, do not, as a rule, look further than the middle distance. Yet population is one of those over-the-horizon threats without enemies, as Lord Rees put it. It's a disaster in slow motion, and all politicians seem to do is provide the sort of platitudes articulated by Michael Heseltine. 
who recently fielded a question on Radio 4, is saying that the problems associated with population never turn out to be as bad as predicted, which is probably true if you can enjoy your own Oxfordshire arboreum, or arboretum, I should say, a little snobbish pun, the guy's getting a dig in into him, of course. No doubt Heseltine and his fellow politicians who are in favour of doing nothing about population will cite the words of John P. Holdren, President Obama's science advisor, who wrote these words in 1969 when he was a young ecologist and Marxist. If there, I added the last part because they should add it in here too. If the population control measures are not initiated immediately and effectively, all the technology man can bring to bear will not fend off the misery to come. Well, they should also put in this article, he, man, he said that we should mandate sterilization through the drinking water, the food, and all the rest of it. But, of course, it's a selective hit piece of propaganda from the Independent, and that's all I have to really say on that particular one. One of many, of course, and it's meant for the, the people in, in between, in between realities. That's the general population who watch television and uh, live in a schizoid mentality. That's what it's really meant for. You see, you must always persuade the victims first that this is necessary, and they come to not, not only love their servitude, but they'll love their scientific advisors who will select them very kindly and nicely, mind you, and, um, and, and treat you with care as they snip, snip away. That's really what it's about. It's, it's far less hassle than having to simply bring you in and shoot you in the head, like the Soviets did. Now, getting back to the G20 meeting, which is the, the biggest uh, extravaganza, cash-wise, that I think we've ever seen. 1.1 billion and climbing, that's dollars, of course. Uh, here's the guys behind the scenes, and this is what I said. The politicians have nothing much to do with anything. They're showpieces, and they sign treaties, as when they're told to. Uh, this article here is from CBC News. It says, Sherpas, the senior diplomats who lay the summit groundwork. Monday is May the 24th, 2010. It says here that the, the gives you the photo ops marking the end of this year's G8 and G20 summits. and says we'll naturally focus on the leaders whose names are attached to the final communiques. But much of the content of those statements, indeed the success of the summits themselves, is largely the work of an unelected group of senior officials who've spent many months preparing for those few days of talks that are followed so closely around the world. Now, these guys travel around the world, these so-called Sherpas, the little nickname they've got, and they meet with the other diplomats of the other countries to make sure they're all on board with the drafting of their treaties. It says here, collectively, they're officially known as the Sherpas, an elite group of bureaucrats who, like the Himalayan mountain guides they're named after, do much of the heavy lifting for the leaders in the spotlight. Remember what I've said before, the guys that, the, that you see are not the bosses, neither are presidents and prime ministers. It's the guys who are number two or behind the scenes that do the real work for the bosses of the parallel government, the real government. It says, shepherds are the personal representatives of each leader. They're not really, they're appointed by much higher people. Career diplomats or senior government officials appointed by each leader to represent their country's interest and carry out the extensive series of pre-summit consultations needed before all such high-profile meetings. There's only one Sherpa per G8 or G20 member. 
Canada's current Sherpa since 2008 is Len Edwards, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. Former Ambassadors Robert Fowler and Derek Burney have also been Sherpas. Flying under the radar is part of the job description. See, the public don't even know what they look like. Flying under the radar is part of the job description. Remember what Carol Quigley said? He said, the real power is in the technocrats, not the politician. The technocrats, he says, don't get the public acclaim and they're not in the limelight, but they're the real power and their satisfaction is knowing they've got the real power to get things done. It says here that their faces are largely unknown to the public at large. They meet behind closed doors and issue no press releases. They travel constantly, working along long hours under intense deadlines. And the meetings begin long before the summits do. And I'll read more about the Sherpas to let you know how the world is rerun when I come back from these messages. Hi, this is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the Matrix reading an article about the guys who prepare all the real work that's to be done and the topics and agreements that we signed at the G20 meeting. And this article goes on about the skirmishes they have. It says, uh, diplomatic skirmishes, building that kind of broad support. In other words, that's what the Sherpas do with other Sherpas from other countries, right? is key if a summit is to succeed. Consensus building is critical precisely because the G8 and G20 are informal groups. It's a pity they wouldn't pay their own expenses if they're so informal, eh? And remember, two consensus buildings, a term used all through all the big foundations there with their non-governmental organizations. They even have foundations uh, fronting uh, for the major foundations and these other foundations front, as they say, and they go out to build consensus across the world with politicians and so on. In other words, it bypasses the democratic process. The public don't even know what's going on with 99% of things that happen in the world, in their own world. They don't. It says here, they cannot force other members to adopt any policy. No one has a veto. And since no leader relishes the, the optics of being part of a failed summit, the search begins early for solutions that allow all leaders to point to concrete steps and declare success. That's where the shepherds' diplomatic skills are really called into play. The behind-the-scenes fighting in the run-up to summits can be quite intense, Savick says. Some issues can be very contentious. When policy differences can't be overcome, the goal is to come up with policies that at least don't interfere with those of other nations. What they really do is uh, either blackmail, pay off, uh, and, you know, under the table, uh, or threats uh, to cut off diplomatic aid or foreign aid. That's what they really do. And while a certain amount of smoozing and persuasion can be accomplished by conference call and email, is frequent, nothing beats FaceTime. It's much easier to get a sense of where people are by meeting face-to-face, says Savick. So there's a PR piece for the Sherpas, and it's the first time really I think I've read any mainstream that they actually even exist, although it was obvious that they do because, I say, politicians um, have, have very little to do except read their scripts and eat a lot of good food that the taxpayer pays for. 
So that's that piece there. And I'll put two or three art links up as well to do with the G20 to show you how they've turned Toronto literally into, uh, they actually say in some of the headlines, Fortress Toronto. But here's an article here about the G20 police. They're bringing in so th- thousands of police have come in from all over Ontario and outside Ontario to take part in this. It's an all on overtime, of course. And this article here is also from the CBC, June the 20th. It says the, the G20 police arsenal includes plastic bullets. Well, this is a bit of a low-key thing because we've got much worse than that. We've got sound cannons and water cannons and all kinds of fancy gizmos. But this article here, again, apart from being a PR piece to see how safe plastic bullets are, it does mention that they were training at a Canadian forces, the military forces base Borden, uh, with, with all this, this equipment before the meeting came up. So there's your police and military working hand in glove for a meeting that didn't even have to take place in the major city. So I'll, I'll put that link up for you to read for yourselves. And there's another article about some of the, the people who are taking part in, in the protests. And this is from the Toronto Sun. Uh, it says here, uh, it's a sample of the concerns and organizations, mostly perfectly respectable and a few that are potentially far from peaceful, that will raise their voices during the G20 and G8 summits. Uh, and they start off, of course, this is for the general public to make you think it's all a bunch of crazies and so on. The Black Bloc arguably the most notorious collection, a tactic rather than group, to threaten the summits. These self-described anarchists look for violence and destruction. They were seen during the Vancouver Winter Olympics and before that during the 1999 World Trade Organization protests in Seattle using the tactic of blending in with non-violent groups and then lashing out. Well, you know, CBC even did a, a, a fictional uh, a movie with our tax money again. Uh, because it's funded by the taxpayer. And it was, it was called the summit. And in there, they actually show you that they do have international, um, generally ex-military types, they hire for mobs. They go in and mix with the people and start the violence. And then it makes all the peaceful ones look crazy. Then they've got, it says here, they've also got the anti-capitalist crusaders, a constant presence at all G8 and G20 meetings. Then the protest against Melis Zenawa. Some groups and concerns will seem foreign to many Canadians, including a movement to denounce attendance of Ethiopian Prime Minister Melis Zenawa at the G20. These protesting, or those protesting include the family of Bashir Maktal, a Canadian jailed for life in Ethiopia. There's a co- the interior coalition against poverty. There's environmental concerns. It's amazing because environmental concerns can get incredible money and funding from the big foundations, which most of them do, to protest at these meetings. And then the guys inside say, oh, look at all those environmental protesters. We better sign agreements to, to appease them. That's how the trick works, isn't it? So groups like the 350.org, a global movement, will be holding a number of events. We want to make sure the 350 network in Canada knows how to plug in, as said the spokesman, May Buev. Animal rights groups so that members of the animal liberation movements and so on will be there. Amnesty International, uh, the pro-Gaza supporters, uh, and then the Marxist associations will all be there as well. And Bikes Not Bombs Toronto, back after this break with more. 
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, just going through some of the uh, to-dos with the big meeting at Toronto with the G20 that's followed by the G8, and it's the most expensive security operation I think we've ever had here. Anybody's to pay $1.1 billion for this uh, this uh, love-in, this big fest they've got, where they have incredible meals, drink a lot of brandy, and they even lay on the prostitutes, according to one of the articles I read from the, the big meeting they had in Vancouver a few years ago, all paid by the taxpayer, and you get the prostitute of your choice uh, or persuasion uh, all laid on, as I say. It's, not, it's, it's quite something, isn't it? How they could live in a different set of rules and values and laws even uh, if you're diplomatic uh, immunity status. So there's another article, 19th of June at CBC. It says the tourists can't uh, wait to get out of Fortress Toronto and away from the Kilometers, there's miles of G20 security fencing that have turned a bustling downtown into an armed camp. Incredible, isn't it? These big high security fences. Tourists trying to check out of the TO on Saturday were subject to lengthy waits for taxis whose drivers had to show photo ID at police checkpoints on Front Street West and get to the Royal York Hotel, CN Tower and Metro Convention Centre. Then they go on with different examples of how it's frustrating the people and so on. And uh, this, they even had a paraplegic, uh, paraplegic meeting uh, for Canada uh, going on as well. And they're trying to get around in wheelchairs. And some of them are saying they're not coming back after being treated this way in Toronto. But no wonder, because the ordinary people who live there have evacuated the place for these, these few days. They can't live in that. You can't live in an armed camp like that. And uh, they're even saying that um, it says all the rooms for hotels around there are promised out to police officers. There's that many cops moved in, you see, for this event to make extra cash. They can't even get rooms for the for the handicapped. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. It's more important that we get the show off. Uh, it's even a more of an extravaganza than royalty, isn't it, really? And it's true what Hamilton said, if you've got royalty to keep, you've only got the royal family, uh, their cousins and so on, to keep in a good lifestyle. But when you've got uh, any other form of government, uh, and it's meant democracy, he said you've got thousands and thousands of them to keep in their lifestyle. And that's exactly what we seem to have here. But it's also got the psychological benefit of, seeming, of giving us impression that we're very little, not, you know, non-worthy people, and these are very special, special people that come out of different wombs in there. And they, they have to be treated differently than you or I. And what else is happening in the world in this great New World Order system that's also undemocratic? But mind you, they do admit we're post-democratic now. So we shouldn't really get so fluffed up about it. We know that they're trying to really ram through this uh, carbon tax and lost a lot of impetus with exposures of the, the emails from the, the various scientists that were all on the take and fudging all the statistics. 
And we know, too, that they will never backtrack from a plan that's taken years to set up, especially when Rothschild Bank in Switzerland is set up for all the carbon credits to go through for the whole planet. And Al Gore and all the rest of them and other companies across the world have got up their carbon their carbon savings plans where they all profit again with millions of bucks. And when you already have international corporations trading the free carbon credits that were given by their governments to get the thing started and they're raking in bucks off it. It's just the general public now have to, who have to get used and get trained that we have to pay them all for these guys, you see. So they never give up. They simply back off, go at it harder, quietly, and then come out again with the same thing. This article here is from The Hills E2 Wire, and it's, it was um, out on the 22nd of June. It says, Senator John Kerry said Tuesday he is in discussions with other lawmakers about scaling back the reach of climate change legislation, but insisted that some type of greenhouse gas provisions are vital to any energy package. They're really talking about taxes here. Kerry and Senator Joel Lieberman are struggling for political traction as they promote a sweeping climate and energy plan they unveiled last month. Now, these guys didn't do this themselves, as I say. What happens, happens worldwide at the same time. And we do have a world government. There's no doubts about it. That's what a new world order means. You can't have a new world order unless you already have an existing world government. And Professor Carl Quigley talks about that in his book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment. You've got to read the Anglo-American Establishment. It shows you the incredible connections between all the ruling families and how they place them in all the different countries at the top positions. The top positions, not the presidents, but the ones who have the real control over money, military, foreign trade, all that kind of stuff. It says, if we're going to get serious, we have to price carbon. Here they go. There are many different ways of doing that. I'm not locked into any one single way of doing it, Kerry said on MSNBC. And I'm working with a number of colleagues now, Republicans and Democrats alike, to look at alternative ways that we might be able to scale back, provide a smaller chunk. What is important is that we begin the process, actually begin the pricing of carbon and send a signal to the marketplace, he said. And it's amazing, too. See, once something's on the books and the public have done it for a few months, it becomes normal. We adapt, unfortunately, to anything, at least those who are in the, the matrix world. They, they truly adapt. As Darwin said, it's the most adaptable species on the planet, mankind. Kerry's bill includes a cap and trade program for power plants. That's the, the energy is going up for everybody. And eventually large factories and some other industrial facilities. The bill's emission caps also covers motor fuels. That's your gasoline. But it contains measures to shield fueled producers from swings in the carbon market. Kerry's comments come ahead of a White House meeting Wednesday between President Barack Obama and a bipartisan group of senators, including Kerry, to discuss energy. The White House Chief of Staff, Ram Emanuel, said Friday that an emissions cap applied only to electric utilities would be welcomed as a, a topic for discussion. But it's going to go across the board to affect everything, everything. And it's intended to do that, of course, as you well know. Now, how far did they go with um, socialized health care? It sounds wonderful. In a real world, it would be nice, wouldn't it? 
and a real world where they really meant to give you uh, and use your tax money by putting it back into society. If they're going to tax you at all, that is. If they even give you an option. But they don't. If they put it back into society and you put it back on the things that you need in society for emergencies. Wouldn't it be nice? But of course, they don't bring in national health care systems for that reason at all. H.G. Uh, Wells explained that so did Lenin and others. They said that, that these services would become authorities over the people. And the more injections they give us, the sicker we become, the more sterile we become as well. And a lot of people literally become, I hate to say the word dumber, but we do. We do. And there's no doubt autism is connected with it because autism was a very rare thing when I was young. Very rare. And we didn't have all these different degrees of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders and all that kind of stuff. And they're given more and more and more injections to the children all the time. But they they cut back on everything. Yeah, you can get a quick abortion in national socialist countries. Very quick abortion. You can get a quick vasectomy. You can get um, your tubes tied very quickly. No problem at all. No waiting list there. But you can't get any serious treatment done, like operations that are really vital to save your life, that kind of stuff. Because after all, it's to do with depopulation, not keeping you alive. And how far does it go? Well, here's here's the next part in Britain, for instance. And this is from... The Mail Online, medicine vending machines that dispense prescriptions 24 hours a day go on trial. 22nd of June 2010. For those who desperately need their prescription medicine, the notion of traveling miles to find a chemist, that's a pharmacy, open is only likely to add to their anxiety, but a dispenser is to go on trial in the UK which will offer medicines at any time of the night or day. Initially, the machines were put into five hospitals. However, the company behind them hopes they can also be installed in high streets, shopping malls and rural locations. Their arrival in Britain has been supported by the UK government and Department of Health. But there are concerns that could put the the pharmacists out of business and that patients could be left unable to get advice from a local pharmacist. So dispensers come in two models, a small one holding 330 packs and a larger one with 2,000. I guess they're expecting a lot of business. 2,000, eh? So you insert a prescription into the machine and pick up a telephone to access a live video link to a registered pharmacist. The pharmacist will check the prescription, probably in another country as well, it'll be that can hardly speak the language, and ensure those who have to pay have done so before allowing the medicine or the machine to dispense the drugs. The dispenser, which costs around £50,000, somebody got a good payoff there, you put that through the National Health Service, eh? has been developed by the Canadian firm Pharma Trust. <laughs> or if it's made of metal, you should call it pharma rusty. Eh? But anyway, this is how things really work in the real world. It's to do with payoffs at the top. And whenever you have a, a pyramid structure in any sector like medicine, uh, they don't have to lobby all those down below. They just go to the ones at the top and lobby them and give them the payoffs, and in it goes. That goes the same with the military too and everything else the big business wants to do. So where you're selling missiles or drugs, um, you just go to the top boys in a national health service system and somebody will get awfully rich off it. I'm, I'm sure of that, if they can keep them there. And uh, they must be really safeguarded with cameras on them and everything because even the old cigarette machines used to get broken into all the time. 
we live in a strange world, don't we? A strange world where we just accept what comes down the pike from our lords and masters without much of a whimper. We're trained that way, you see. We're trained to just accept things. And once things have that strange title of law, we simply obey and say, well, what can you do? What can you do? That's how people are. You hear it all the time. Now, the Florida idea of, in the States of value-added tax. Well, you see, for the world community, as it was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR, they said there would have to be uh, basically a form of taxation, and they came up with the idea of value-added tax. By the way, when you read their old books, uh, they admit proudly that they were the ones who brought into the U.S. and Britain income tax. They put, they, their members put the bills through into their Congress and Parliament. And they also came up with the idea of property tax. So here they go with the value-added tax. Now, most people, most countries, all the countries in Europe that join the EU have to put in a value-added tax. And they start it fairly low usually and then put it up. And they started off initially on a few objects and then it goes on to everything, including your food and your postage stamps. So in Britain, they've already got it. In Canada, they have a general sales tax. When Brian Mulroney was in as a prime minister, they tried to get value-added tax through, and everybody said no. So we changed the name to general sales tax. So we do have it here, and it's to go up here in uh, July in Canada. Getting back to Britain, this is from Bloomberg, June 22nd. Osborne increases, I guess he's the chancellor or whatever, of Britain. Uh, the UK value-added tax rate to 20% from 17.5%. That's 20% on every purchase. Is an overt tax, which does not include all the hidden taxes already there. It says, British Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, increased the value-added tax to 20% from 17.5% in the first permanent change to the levy on sales of goods and services in almost two decades. The years of debt and spending make this unavoidable, Osborne told Parliament in London in his emergency budget today as he announced a package of spending cuts and tax increases to cut the UK's record deficit. I love how the, the, these governments, don't you realize that government's a problem? If it worked, we would never be in constant incredible debt, getting worse all the time, would it? So why would you vote for people who always make things worse? Because you're trained to. And you can't imagine, imagine any other system. That's why. It says, So the years of debt and spending makes it unavoidable. Here they are paying for roads to get built across other countries in Europe when they can't even build their own roads in Britain. And we're doing the same thing here in Canada through the different treaties like GATT. As I say, we, we build can-do reactors for the Chinese and the taxpayers pay for it in Canada. Meanwhile, they will not fix the, the reactors we have here. They close them down and say they're too old and they can't find the money to fix them. As they bring us down to a third world status, which is the agenda. It is the agenda, folks. And we'll just accept that. So, uh, as I say, is to come into the States as well. And I'll love to see how they'll, how they'll introduce that. Uh, on top of carbon taxes and everything. Or maybe they'll sneak it in with the carbon taxes and call it something else. No doubt they will. What a world we live in. We live in a, in a, a Mickey Mouse 
La La Land. And most folk live in La La Land. They don't live in any kind of real reality at all. With fiction shown all the time. People can remember the first Seinfeld movie, but they can't remember what happened 10 years ago or 15 or in any major way whatsoever. Everything's very vague in their mind, if you can stimulate it at all to remember. It's very vague. And people are being taught to be powerless. They forget they have power. But they have been trained for an awful long time that they're there to serve government and you simply obey government rather than government is supposed to be there to serve you. Now, a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, authors wrote books on democracy. And they said eventually and inevitably, those with the biggest groups would hold the power. Today, the biggest groups are the non-governmental organizations because they're affiliated with groups across the world and now make up global groups, you see. So they're funded by the foundations to make sure that they demand and lobby for the very agendas that the governments want to hear them lobby about. They're only too happy to sign them into law with environment, taxation, new system, depopulation, and all the rest of it. There's an article here as well on Sandia National Laboratory. This is July 26. I'll put these links up on my site, cuttingthroughmatrix.com, at the end of the show, remember. It says, Sandia and U.S. Army's America's Army simulation helps special forces learn adaptive thinking and cultural awareness. That's so they can go abroad and, and con folk and kill them with more efficiency. I'll read this when I get back from this break. Cutting through the Matrix, reading an article about a new strategy for the military, a new training exercise uh, technique, and it's from it's from uh, this um, uh, the National Laboratories at Sandia. Sounds a very benign place, Sandia, but they're into nanotechnology and a whole bunch of different things. High, high, uh, highly scientific organization, well, incredibly funded actually. It says here. U.S. Special Forces are getting a unique education in adaptive thinking, negotiation, conflict resolution, and leadership with cross-cultural settings, a result of a new multiplayer computer simulation. Developed by a team from the National Nuclear Security Administration's Sandia National Laboratories, the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy's Special Warfare Center and School, and the U.S. Army's Office of Economic Manpower Analysis. Very interesting and its American Army Government Applications team. The adaptive thinking and leadership simulation uses a computer game technology to train special forces uh, soldiers in critical skills. It'll probably end up um, blunting any any um, human emotional abilities left in you, I'd imagine. This adaptive thinking and leadership simulation is only the simulation um, focused on interpersonal flexibility and strategic communication in cross-cultural settings, says Dr. Elaine Rayburn, Sandia research scientist and project leader of the Special Forces ATL simulation development effort. 
Adaptive thinking is critical for special forces soldiers as they embark on missions around the world, she says. The simulation offers highly interactive communications exercises and learning to respect and work with other cultures. Well, what are they going over there to do? What do you think they're going over to do with other cultures? Communication skills and interpersonal adaptability are paramount in successfully achieving special forces objectives. It's kill and destroy and and achieve and, and conquer. I mean, that's it, isn't it? The adaptive thinking leadership simulation is designed to allow players to discover their strengths and weaknesses in mental agility, cultural awareness and interpersonal adaptability and communication. By role-playing in a dynamically changing environment, users sharpen their ability to anticipate the consequences of different courses of action to problems they may not have a right answer to. So, there you go. Uh, Again, more depersonalization courses on the go, because that's really what it's about, isn't it? Your teams are trained to do nothing but, as I say, conquer, kill and destroy and uh, win. That's it by any and all means possible. And the only law there is in special forces is necessity, the law of necessity, whatever it takes at the time you do. And that means literally doing things which are abhorrent in any natural setting. You must put all emotions to the side to conquer for your masters. But you get little tin stars and stuff like that if you do your job well. And they might even give you a little brass band once in a while in a ceremony, then you can go home and boast about it forever to your people who are probably all paying carbon taxes and extra different fees just to survive as the prices go up and up and up. It's ridiculous, isn't it, how we're trained to do all the things for the masters above that you never even hear their real names, who they really are, unless you go into some of the books and look at some of the very old families. But they're never in the newspapers. Never news, but they could own the controlling shares of every big international corporation there is. And the controlling shares are never sold on the market. So they never lose. And they never lose out when there's any crashes either. They pull out long before that happens, generally four years in advance. But that's the reality of the world we live in. I think that's the music. Yeah, I think that's music. So, from Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.